morning. My privilege to bring with me this morning one of my friends. Wanam Dasali was born in eastern Ethiopia to a rural, rural sitting and came to the big city of Addis Ababa, the capital, to prove his fortunes. It was there that he met some missionaries, and uh, through their ministry, they led him to the Lord. And he also learned how to sign, so he had that as well. A couple of years later, a Marxist government chased out all the American missionaries, and so Wanda became an underground pastor. It wasn't long before he was arrested and put in prison. Some of his friends uh, suffered greatly. The Lord was gracious to him, and he was released, and he fled to Kenya. And there, instead of just moaning his situation, he started his own ministry to the death. Then he got permission to come to the United States, and that's where I met him at Cascade Bible College as he was finishing his education. During all those years, he always wanted to go back home and start churches. And so God took and opened the door here a couple of years ago. So Wanam has been back home in Ethiopia doing ministry work. The last year has been very difficult there. There's been an, a low-grade civil war going on. We hear very little of it here in the United States, but people are being killed every day, depending on the tribes. A couple of large tribes are fighting over who's going to control the government. Now, Wanam has been fairly safe in the city that he lives in, and he would never tell you this, but a couple in his uh, family in his Bible study uh, were from a minority tribe and were on the wrong side of the line. And so he arranged to have some friends drive a van out to the area, had the family ready, they jumped in the van, and they rushed away to safety. Thank you, Wandam, for that. So uh, being traveled has been very dangerous lately. Wandam has taking the opportunity to travel down to uh, Kenya again and to make contact with some of the churches and the deaf people they had come to know there years ago. So he's going to bring us up to date today on his ministry. Work is going on in Ethiopia in spite of the, the civil war, but some of the opportunities had lately by ministering in, in Kenya. So, Wandam, blessings on you. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you very, very much for your prayer. Uh, last time I asked you to pray for me 30 seconds, if you remember. That 30 second prayer is working very much because we are together. When you pray here, I'm there. Wherever I go with the confidence because the Holy Spirit go before me. Thank you very, very much. May the Lord bless you. So I have some, this is two. Uh, we have uh, a church in Burji, in Burji area. This is a two evangelists, Waldi and Abai. There is a two evangelists. They work very, very hard. The side is uh, Abai. Abai is working in Guji area. The Guji area is very, very difficult. Even if it's an evangelist, if he goes there, they will kill Still, they have a problem. Still, he's working. He's outer outreach there. And Walde is in Soyama. He is the one with building a church. And he is the evangelist. Both of them work together. In Ethiopia, it is very, very hard time. The whole year, 
I can't drive. I wanted to visit you. Don't come. Okay, I, I would like to come this road. That one is blocked. They are fighting. Don't come, please. Okay, I'll go. I'll come this area, this road. No, don't come that area because they are very fighting. And okay, it is six months, seven months, and eight months. After that, I started to. I, I don't want to call them the elders, the evangelists, and quietly. I'll go around when I almost am going to reach in the van, and two people, they came with gun. Finish wonder. <laughs> I was scared. And the driver stopped, they opened the door, and they come in, they started to talk in their language. Somebody, what's he talking? And he told me something, okay. And so that is our side people. So the road, it was very bad. Please pray for them in Ethiopia. Now we have a good prime minister. He is Dr. Abi Mohammed. He's a born-again Christian. So he's doing very, very good. We need prayer for him. So in the future, we'll have a good things. So... Uh, I received a, a letter from Kenya, invitation, can you come to preach to us? And a long time, he wrote a letter to Dr. Dwight. Dwight, he sent me, I forget that name, the person. It is, I was praying and praying, and I sent back email, okay, I would like to come. How many people you have in your church? Oh, I have 60 Deaf people, okay. And I went there, I preached. After I preaching in sign language, American sign language, one of the ladies say, when we chatting in our social, I know you. She's a big lady. I was scared. How do you know me? <laughs> How do you know me? And I know very well. You know me? Yes. Where is your gold tooth? Oh, one day I start to cry. I used to have a gold tooth. 30 years ago, we, uh, 1986, I used to have the Day for Christ ministry. In that camp, we had uh, 250 deaf people, four days, independent Baptist church, they uh, allow us to have this camp. And on that time, 25 deaf Children, they accept Jesus. On that time, she was accepted with her husband. So they remember me after 30 years. So now the door is open in Kenya. Uh, the, this is I'm um, signing for that church. And we are starting a church there for the deaf people, the deaf for Christ ministry. Please pray for that. The Day for Christ ministry. That one it is camping, the day for reaching in Ethiopia and Kenya. So I'll make short. Another time when I come, I will talk. If you want, after the service, I will tell you more about Ethiopia and the ministry. So please keep me in your prayer 30 seconds, 30 seconds. 
You can pray for me when you're driving, when you are in office, wherever. But when you drive, the light it is red, you can pray. Don't <laughs> close your eyes. Don't close your eyes, please, and you can pray. May the Lord bless you abundantly. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. My prayer is with you, and greeting for the Burji Church. They are very exciting. Please come and visit, and Kenya and Ethiopia. God bless you. Juan has a, has a theme verse, which is in the book of Malachi. 3.16, a very great verse. And then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Good theme, isn't it? If you have your Bibles with you or some other apparatus, we'll look at... Uh, Jeremiah 36 this morning. Charles Dickens in his book, The Tale of Two Cities, started out by saying, this is the best of times, this is the worst of times. And he could have just as well said this was the theme for the book of Jeremiah. The best of times, the worst of times on there. The prophet Jonah knew very well what the future bode for little Israel. That's why he never wanted to go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians. Within 25 years, they had come and overrun Israel and destroyed the capital of Samaria. They'd taken a good part of the population and redistributed in other places, and they would never again return to their own lands. They would become the disliked Samaritans of the New Testament. And at the same time, the Assyrians pushed down into little Judah and threatened the city of Jerusalem. Then King Hezekiah, a man who feared God and loved God, along with the great prophet Isaiah, prayed that somehow God would spare Judah and Jerusalem. And God sent some kind of a, a plague or something that wiped out the Assyrian army at that point, and so they returned home. Hezekiah fell, fell sick soon after that, but God gave him another 15 years. That's what uh, whole style uh, medicine can do for you. He gave him a POTUS and he survived. But during those 15 years, a number of things happened, and one was he fathered a son by the name of Manasseh. And Manasseh was only 12 years old when he became king. The book of Kings reckons him, reckons him as the worst king that Judah ever had. He was a man who turned his back on God. He tried to kill all the priests and the prophets. He took and he put idols in the temple of God. And he tried to wipe out all the copies of the law by burning them. And so by the end of his reign, little Judah was in terrible condition the religion was almost gone, and people were taking and worshiping idols everywhere. It was totally accepted. But God had, had other plans, and at the passing of Manasseh, 
and his son, who was actually assassinated, a young boy by the name of Josiah, came to the throne. He was only eight years old, but he had a very different heart. And led by the high priest, Elkiah, he became a leader. And slowly but surely, he began a revival and a renewal in the land. Along with him was the prophet Jeremiah, who was probably about his age. He had grown up in a little priestly village about two miles from Jerusalem and Anathoth. And he never really served as a, as a priest, although that was his family's heritage and what he could have done. Instead, God called on him to be a prophet to his people. And so while Josiah the king was making changes at the very top, Jeremiah was preaching and teaching to his people and bringing change within. And this was a, this was a process. And it seemed for a time that little Judah was, was going to turn the corner and become the people that God had intended for them. The high places that had been the temptations of the people. They had taken and, and spoken out and acted out against God's first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And yet, on the high places, they worshiped Baal and Ashtroth. Yes, they would come to the temple for the holidays, but then they would go home and revert back to the old ways. Josiah tried to wipe these places out and to bring change in people's heart. And for a time, it looked like there was going to be success. And then Josiah got involved in politics, and he tried to stop the Egyptian army from uh, um, the attack that they were going to make in the north, and he was wounded and died. He was only 39 years old. And with that, with his death, it brought a total change to the little country of, of Judah. The Babylonians got involved and they came down and they changed who was going to be king. They set King Jehoiakim, which was Josiah's oldest son, on the throne. Unfortunately, Jehoiakim was very much like his grandfather, a man who had no respect for God, no fear for him. He was only interested in his own life and politics. And so for Jeremiah, his life changed as well. The good times were gone, and the bad times were beginning at that. And so God sent Jeremiah to preach a sermon on a, on a holiday, probably uh, the Day of Atonement towards the end of the fall. Sent to the, he went to the temple, stood in the corner, and preached a sermon to the people who had come up. The city was full. They were there to worship. And he spoke to them and said, you know... You look back to the past. You look back to King Hezekiah and Isaiah and to the times when God spared Jerusalem and the temple. And you think that because the temple is here, God is going to spare you from whatever might happen because they were being menaced already by the Babylonians. And he said, you need to turn back to God. You need to turn your hearts back to him. Leave your evil sinning ways and worship only the Lord God. And as he was preaching, he was surrounded by some of the people who threatened him. 
And he said to them, well, while you're talking about history, I want to take you one step back. Let's go back to the, to the prophet Samuel. Do you remember that he was raised at Shiloh? And the tabernacle in those early days was, was still the tent, and it was pitched there at Shiloh. And then the Philistines came, and the Ark of the Covenant was lost to the Philistines in battle. And the city, or the place of Shiloh, was burned, and the tabernacle was burned. I want you to remember that, that God did not spare his own tabernacle at that point. And so it got very hot for Jeremiah. In fact, had it not been for the fact that there were some leaders who were sympathetic to him, he probably would have been killed at that point. It had gotten very, very serious. And so for the next couple of years, Jeremiah had to serve basically in silence. But God had other plans for him. And in chapter 36 we read, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah until now. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, each of them will turn from his wicked way and I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. So this is the message that Jeremiah is called to preach. It's not popular, obviously, and it's even dangerous. The fourth year of Jehoiakim was very significant. That was the first of Nebuchadnezzar's march on Jerusalem. He would come three times, and there would be consequences each time. This first time, he didn't destroy anything. Instead, he rounded up some of the Aristotle aristocracy, young men like Daniel and some of his friends, and carted them off to Babylon. This was a warning. There would be more to come if they didn't follow the path that he wanted. And so this is the background as the Lord now comes to Jeremiah and says, I want you to write down these words of warning so that the people might hear them and perhaps they'll change their way. So Jeremiah, verse 4, called Baruch, and while Jeremiah dictated all the words that the Lord had spoken to him, Baruch wrote them down on a scroll. Then Jeremiah said to Baruch, I am restricted, I cannot go to the Lord's temple, so you go to the house of the Lord on a day of fasting and read to the people from the scroll the words of the Lord that, are wrote, that you wrote as I dictated. Read them all, so that the people of Judah who will come down from their towns. Perhaps they will bring their petition before the Lord, and each will turn from his wicked way. For the anger and wrath are pronounced against these people by the Lord are great. So we meet for the first time Baruch. I'm sure that um, he had dealings with Jeremiah in the past. They probably were good friends, the way it sounds. But Baruch has a special calling. He is a scribe. Now, uh, when we look back at the Old Testament, they often think that people back that, during that time were basically illiterate. But there are indications through all the Old Testament a number of people were able to read. And uh, it is something that can easily be learned along the way. And because the law was such an important part of the people's lives, I, th I think there were always people in the villages 
and especially among the priests who learned to read. Um, some years ago, a small tribe in, in Western Africa uh, who had a language, their own unique language, incidentally, I think there's over 83 different languages in Ethiopia alone, and this little tribe, had its language had never been prescribed and had never been written down, and then some uh, Wycliffe missionaries came in and worked on turning their language into a written language. And it went right along. And as it progressed, they began to teach people how to read, even from young to old. And they were eager to learn to read. And as time went on, they uh, got pieces and parts of the Bible translated. I think, like, for instance, the book of Philippians and one or two other small books with that. So that, along with a few reading books, that was the sum total. Uh, Wycliffe says today that there are 6,000 385 major languages. I'm sure there are many more than that. And there are only 400 languages about who have the whole Bible, if you can believe that. Of those eight, 6,000 languages, only 400 have the whole Bible. Maybe another 2,000 have a part of it, like this tribe. Well, everything went smoothly for a year or two. Everybody was working on reading. They learned to read the Bible. And then after a couple of years, they just quit. And they went back to telling stories around the campfire at night. And the missionaries were a little bit baffled. But as they talked to people, they began to realize that people had read everything there was to read. There was nothing more to read. So they got, why bother anymore? You know, we are so overburdened with literature, we can't even think about reading what even comes hardly in the mail every day, let alone the library down the street. But here is a people who are literate, but they don't have anything to read. And to some extent, I think that was the case in the Old Testament, that most people couldn't afford scrolls, certainly not all of them. And so, yes, they could read, but what was there to read? And so we don't, we don't find a whole lot of incidences in the Old Testament of people reading very much only here and there. And for a scribe, he had to learn to write. Now, we started learning to write when we were probably five or six and I would guess, if you're like me, writing has never been our most successful venture. Uh, maybe we can text better these days than we write. I don't know. But I even teach, or I try to teach, writing online, and I find my students have a terrible time with it. So in the past, if you had no experience learning how to write, it was something that you were still doing X's along the way. So there were people with a trade, scribes, who could take and provide writing for you. They can give you a sentence, a paragraph, even a story if you need it. They would do it for you. And Baruch was one of these men who was a professional scribe. Now, I'm sure Jeremiah could write something, but he probably was slow, and he, he uh, would rather just dictate than try to write it himself. Now, scribes in those days tended to own a little desk, box actually, about that big, and they, they had three items in it. They would have a, a, a bar of ink. Usually it was made out of uh, ashes and, and animal fat and that they would take and write off. And they would have some kinds of reeds or writing quills that they would have in their box. So when they got ready to write, they would uh, trim it off. They would scrape a little ink on it. And then they would write. And you know the Hebrews write from right, 
right from right to left. So they would go this way. And then because they were writing ink, indelible ink, on either parchment, animal skins, or uh, papyrus, a reed paper from Egypt, if you made a mistake, you couldn't just take a rubber eraser and remove it. So they all owned a little knife, almost like a small scalpel, with, that they could take and scrape their mistakes off. And then when it dried, they could copy over again. So these were the three items that they would carry in their scribe's box. This was their, their tools of trade along the way. So Baruch would have these. And he now is Jeremiah's right-hand man. He's the one helping him. So I don't know how long it took to take and dictate that first copy of the book of Jeremiah probably several weeks. You can only copy so fast. And you have to remember that in the Hebrew language, there are only capital letters, there are no breaks, and no punctuation. So it's just letter on letter on letter is down on there. Well, when he was through, and I'm not sure he knew what was going to happen, but Jeremiah adds to his task. You remember back to his sermon, his first sermon that Jeremiah made. Not only was his life threatened, but he was told you may not go to the temple and preach anymore. So how was this message going to get out? Baruch, take this copy now, and I want you to go down to the temple, and I want you to read it to the people so that they can hear it, and perhaps their heart will be changed. And I suspect that uh, Baruch maybe uh, swallowed a couple of times, thought about it pretty seriously, but... I think he felt the call of God upon him too after having written out that message that Jeremiah had received from the Lord. So dangerous as it was, Baruch took the scroll, went down to the temple on another feast day, and Baruch did everything, this is verse 8, that Jeremiah the prophet had told him to do at the Lord's temple, and he read the words of the Lord on the scroll. And uh, I'm going to drop down to verse, my, my uh, eyesight these days aren't what they used to be, but I'm down to verse 11. So when Malchiah, one of the important men, now he, several of them were in the temple when, when Baruch is writing out, reading out this scroll. And of course, as soon as they heard it, they panicked because for all purposes, practical purposes, this was treason. He was telling the people that if they don't change, if things don't change, the Lord is going to take and punish them. And who's he going to start with? And that's with the king, of course, at that point. And so they got a hold of Baruch, and they took him down to the royal palace where the officials were sitting. And uh, they gathered together, and they asked Baruch to take and read the scroll to him. And he said, bring the scroll from which you've read to the people and come. And so Baruch the son, this is uh, uh, verse 15. But it came down with the scroll and they said to him, sit down and read it to us. In old times, the, uh, the reader always sat down. And you can imagine if you've got a scroll about 20 feet long, it's a lot easier to sit down and read it and hold it than it is to stand up and read it. So the listener stood up and the reader sat down. So Baruch read it, and when they heard all the words, they looked at each other in fear and said to Baruch, 
we must report all these words to the king. And then they said to Baruch, tell us, how did you come to write this? Did Jeremiah dictate it? Yes, Baruch replied. He dictated all these words to me, and I wrote them down in ink on the scroll. Verse 10, and so the official said to Baruch, you and Jeremiah go and hide. Don't let anyone know where you are. They realize how dangerous this scroll has become. And they are interested in saving both Baruch and Jeremiah's life. They, they must have still had some godliness in them. So verse 20, after they put the scroll in the room, Elishama, the secretary, they went to the king in the courtyard and reported everything to him. The king had spies everywhere, so they couldn't hide it if they wanted to. And the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and Jehudi brought it from the room of the secretary and read it to the king and all the officials standing beside him. Now it was the ninth month, which would make it about December. Now, usually Jerusalem is, is quite warm, but in the wintertime, it can get quite cold. It's 2,000 feet high, and there are times when snow comes to Jerusalem, and uh, it, can, it can be very chilly. And so the, the king is sitting in this, his room, throne room, and he's got a little blazer in front of him, burning probably charcoal at that point. The king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. And whenever Jehoiada had read three or four columns of the scroll, the, Lord, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife. So he'd be reading along, and when he, he'd get angry, he'd just chop off a piece of it and throw it in the fire. Listen to more of it, throw it in the fire. Listen, throw, and cut it. Until the entire scroll was burned in the fire... And the king and all of his attendants who heard these words showed no fear. I think this is the thing that bothered Jeremiah the most. Nor did they tear their clothes. No respect for the Lord or for his word. He was just going to take, and he did, he destroyed it. And then the king called together some of his, his men there and sent them, and sent them after uh, Baruch and Jeremiah the prophet. But the Lord had hidden them, so that was their, their privilege. After this, the king, after the king had burned the scroll containing the words that Baruch had written at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, take another scroll and write on it all the words. The interesting thing is I think that every generation there is some attempt to destroy the word of God in one way or another. Sometimes it's the Bible's origin. How did it come to us? Is it true? Is the message true at that point? It's interesting that about 60 years ago, especially those who were critical of the Bible were saying, you know, the earliest Bible we have is from the 9th century. And it was interesting at that time that it was in the, uh, a museum in, in Lenenburg. So the Russians... The communists had the, had the oldest copy of the Old Testament at that point. But then a little Arab boy herding his flock of goats found scrolls in a cave that we know today as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And almost the entire message of the Old Testament was found among those scrolls. And what was important is they dated all the way back to the first century. So almost a thousand years later, than the text that we 
already had. Here was a new one. It was interesting that the Revised Version Bible was being prepared at that time, and they were working on the book of Isaiah. And actually, a full copy of the book of Isaiah was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it was basically just some spelling differences. Over a thousand years, it had been so accurately taken and written down from one generation to another by the scribes. The origin of the Bible stands strong. What about the transmission I am, of the scriptures? I'm sure you've heard of the book, uh, The Da Vinci Code, which was a big topic here a couple of years ago in which the author took and, and suggested that uh, our New Testament especially had come uh, in a very different way than is usually uh, told about the, about the books. And uh, we have to remember that his was a novel, and very was a novel, and doesn't reflect at all the true history of how the New Testament especially has come down to us. But there are people who believe that was the way it happened. And then there are times when people wonder about the content of the Bible. Is the message trustworthy? Can we believe it? There's an interesting story about Thomas Jefferson, one of the fathers of our nation. He didn't like in the New Testament miracles. And so he took a copy of the New Testament and he cut it up. He kept all the messages of Jesus because he liked Jesus and he liked what he said, but he didn't like his miracles. And then he pasted them together in kind of a, his own scrapbook New Testament. And we still have it yet. So the Jefferson Bible, he wrote it as he wanted it, not as God had given it. And that's important to remember. The whole message of the Bible is the living message that God has given to us. And so the Lord has protected his word. Even today there are nations where it is against the law to own a Bible. It's illegal to bring it in. And there are consequences if you're caught with a Bible. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters in these countries where the Bible is forbidden. God still has a way of getting the message in. Today, by radio, by television, the word still goes around the world and you can't shut it out. It's still there. But the Bible is the important book of our faith. And so God has laid on Jeremiah's heart that his work is not done. Southern Judah is uh, wine country, and there are uh, vineyards, small vineyards everywhere. And amongst the vineyards, there are these small stone towers, they're usually five or six feet around, made of stone, they're usually six, eight feet high, about room for maybe two people if, if needs be in them. And they're in place so that as the grapes ripen, they can be protected from four-footed creatures, and also two-footed creatures if they get too carried away with your grapes at that point. And so these towers are, are for guarding your vineyard. Well, the only time there's anybody in them, of course, is in fall as the grapes begin to ripen and are prepared for, for picking and, and uh, pressing. And I can't help but feel that perhaps this is one of the places that God took and hid Jeremiah and Baruch. Nobody would ever look in one of those towers if they didn't start a fire. That they would be safe there, especially if they had friends to maybe bring them a, a little food and drink every now and then. 
It's interesting during that period of time that uh, the two men toiled together that our picture of their work is kind of interesting in its own way. Uh, chapter 45 in Jeremiah is an insight into both the work of these two men and especially the heart of one of them. Now, Jeremiah has, has gotten a new scroll. Baruch has his little writing desk with his tools in hand. He's ready to start taking dictation again. This is what Jeremiah the prophet told Baruch in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. After Baruch had written a scroll, the words that Jeremiah had been dictating. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to you, Baruch. You say, woe is me. The Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am worn out with groaning and I find no rest. Sounds just like any one of us in a hard situation, isn't it? God, what are you, what are you doing with me? What am I doing here? Why has this happened to me? I'm collateral damage, you know? I'm not even a major prophet. I'm not even a minor prophet. But here I am, stuck in this tower or wherever I'm hiding. It's cold. Remember, it's December. I'm writing as fast as I can. And here I am. What's my future? What's happening to me? I am worn out with groaning. And the Lord says, say this to him. This is what the Lord says. I will overthrow what I have built and uprooted, what I have planted throughout the land. Should you then seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For I will bring disaster on all these people, declares the Lord. But wherever you go, you I will let you escape with your life. Things are difficult, Baruch. Yes. But you have to take this and see it in, in a wider perspective. See it from my view. You're cold, you're hungry, you're tired of writing, your hand is, your hand is, is worn out. This isn't even of your making. This is, this is Jeremiah's mess. You've sent him to do it, and I've gotten dragged into it. And, and look what has happened to me. And the Lord says very patiently and very quietly, and as far as I know, this is the only book in the Bible written to a person in this way. It's as if he stops the whole world and he says, Brooke, my son, think about this. Yes, it's tough. It's hard right now. And I want you to see what's happening out there. Look, this is my people. Look what they are doing. Look what they have failed to do. And what I have planted, all the things I have done are going to be destroyed. Everything is going to be overthrown, uprooted. I'm going to bring disaster on this people. As a father's heart, I am very sad about what is going to take place and what is taking place right now. You're having a little pity party, all right? But there are other things in play here, Baruch. And you know what, son? I'm going to take care of you too. When things really get rough, and they're going to, in just a couple of years, 
Uh, Babylon is going to come up against Jerusalem and they're going to besiege it for a year and a half till people are eating each other and people are dying of sickness and tragedy. And then they're going to, well, whoever survives is going to be deported to Babylon. The Lord promises Baruch, he said, in the spite of all this war and devastation and destruction, I am going to save your life. And it's interesting that as the city of Jerusalem fell, the Babylonian general knew about Jeremiah and his preaching and teaching about what was going to happen. And so when the worst was over, Jeremiah got to choose whether he was going to stay with his people and go into exile or stay with the few, with the little remnant that survived. And along with Jeremiah was his friend and scribe, Baruch. God had plans for Baruch. They maybe weren't what Baruch had expected, probably not even what he wanted that day, but God's word came to him personally, that God cared for him, and he had a purpose and plan for him. God protects his word. We see that in the book here of Jeremiah. In spite of the king's determination to take away all the words of warning and destruction, God had other intentions. He still had his servants there. I don't know today if you think about it. As I raise my book of Jeremiah, thank you, Baruch, for your faithfulness. You, you stood it out. You wrote those characters one by one as cold and unhappy and discouraged as you were. You were faithful to the Lord. And we are blessed the word of God is ours today because Baruch was, fa was faithful to his call. God is that way. He protects his word and he protects his saints. They're ours. Shall we pray? Thank you, Lord, for the book of Jeremiah, for its testimony of your faithfulness to your, to your message. Thank you for sh sharing with us how the word has come down to us, <coughs> to the faithfulness of your servants, in spite of all that the enemies have attempted and tried. Thank you for Brother Baruch, for his willingness to hear your word, to write your word, to be faithful to it. Might we be as faithful as he was in our lives, in our walk, in our talk, in our sharing of, of your gospel. We pray today that you would Bless our time. Thank you for the opportunity to fellowship together and the knowledge that we as the children, your children, are yours and you're going to take care of us. For we thank you in our Savior's precious name. Amen.